Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming out uh, early in the morning in Vegas. And I, I want to talk uh, about this topic, the brain or the body, which should we treat, which do we treat when we apply uh, treatments for our patients with pain. Before I get to my specific content, I, I did want to mention, uh, first of all, I have nothing to disclose. Here are the learning objectives for today's session. And this is part of the American Pain Society track. So for the past several years, the American Pain Society has been partnering with Pain Week to offer a track uh, for the attendees here with a focus on uh, providing evidence-based information that's relevant to management of patients with chronic pain. You can see a list of the, of the sessions today. The theme for the APS track this year is mind-body therapies for pain. And so my talk is meant to be, in some ways, an introduction uh, to sort of mind-body therapies and, and treating the brain and the body when we're treating chronic pain. And then we'll hear from several experts. Uh, Dr. Napadow will talk to us about neuromodulation, essentially brain stimulation approaches. Um, Dr. Rick Harris uh, will talk to us about uh, acupuncture as well as neurochemical imaging. And then uh, Dr. Stephen George will talk about uh, manipulative therapies for uh, back pain. So that's the overall American Pain Society track. Um, I'm this is the advertisement portion of the sessions today. So I do want to just mention to you what the American Pain Society is. We are an organization uh, devoted to education, research, and treatment of chronic pain. We advocate strongly for increased funding for pain research um, in order to produce new discoveries that will translate into new treatments for our patients. You can see many of the benefits of membership here. Um, and if you have interest in the American Pain Society, I'm happy to talk to you at any point. Uh, and certainly, you can access our website. So we invite any of you who are interested to, to join our organization. OK. That concludes the advertisement portion of the session. So let's get to uh, some content here. Um, and, and I want to talk about several things. First, uh, we'll talk some about some conceptual models of pain and how sort of mind-body therapies might fit into those and, and how these conceptual models of pain deal with this issue of treating the brain versus the body uh, in people with chronic pain. Uh, and then we'll talk about some of the peripheral and central mechanisms driving the experience of pain uh, and then the treatments uh, for pain as in terms of whether they fit into body versus brain-based treatments, and then some conclusions and recommendations. Okay. And I recognize here that um, should we treat the brain or the body, I've set up a straw man here. Uh, the answer ultimately is we should treat both, but I, I think we should enter into our decisions about treatment keeping in mind what the targets of our treatments are and whether the effects that are going to be most helpful for the patient in front of us uh, are going to be most helpful if they target the brain-based mechanisms driving that patient's pain or more peripheral body-based mechanisms. And so 
uh, obviously the brain and the body work together, uh, and so uh, treatments that impact one likely impact the other, but I want to make some somewhat artificial distinctions just to highlight uh, the importance of brain uh, versus body-based treatment. Uh, and part of this comes from our tradition of treating pain uh, in the biomedical enterprise. And, and historically, we've approached pain from a very biomedical model. You see some of the tenets of the biomedical model here. Pain is a sensory experience arising from peripheral nociception, right? Something happens to me as a patient that activates nociceptors. It might be a disease process. It might be a surgery. Uh, and activation of these nociceptors is what is driving my pain, right? And all we have to do is turn off the nociceptors, and I will feel all better, okay? Uh, and it would be nice if it were that convenient, but unfortunately, uh, for patients with chronic pain, we realize that it's far more complex than this. Um, it's also the case, historically, that we have viewed pain as a symptom of disease or tissue damage. And so the priority has historically been, oh, well, let's fix the tissue damage or treat the disease and pain improvement will come along for the ride, okay? However, now there's an increasing appreciation that pain, especially chronic pain, can become largely independent of tissue damage or injury or disease and become a disease process in its own right. In fact, the Institute of Medicine report that came out about five years ago on transforming pain in America made that point very explicitly that pain can essentially become its own entity independent of the tissue damage or disease that we've uh, historically focused on. Uh, a related tenant of the biomedical model is that pain is proportional to the tissue damage that a patient has or to their pathology, right? And so we should be able to look at your radiographs if you have NeoA and tell you how much pain you're supposed to have, right? Uh, but we can't do that. Uh, many in virtually every chronic pain condition, the objective signs that we see are very poorly related to the symptoms that the patient has. And so this tenant of the biomedical model uh, tends to break down, and I'll give you some examples of that. Uh, and then finally, uh, as we alluded to up here, the assumption is that if we just correct the tissue damage or treat the disease, pain will get better. And unfortunately, there are far too many examples of treatments of tissue damage or disease that not only failed to improve pain, but in many instances actually exacerbated the patient's pain. So those are some of the tenets of the biomedical model that we're trying to supplant with a new, more um, sophisticated and accurate way of thinking about chronic pain and, and the patients who experience chronic pain. Now, there are some clinical corollaries of the biomedical model that we should also be aware of. So if you believe all the stuff I just listed on that other slide, it should motivate you to do lots of diagnostic tests of what's going on in a patient's periphery. 
because you've got to figure that out in order to find out what the treatment's going to be. And it certainly leads to lots of testing, uh, much of which ends up being unhelpful and likely unnecessary. Okay. Um, it's also the case that peripheral, uh, the biomedical model would suggest to us that if we see peripheral abnormalities on these many tests that we do, we should fix those, right? And if we fix those, the patient's going to get better, and if we don't fix them, they can't possibly get better. Uh, lots of examples when that happens not to be true. Um, and then finally, and this has probably been the most damaging to patients, when we don't, all these extensive tests we do don't show us why the patient has pain, there's been a historical temptation to invalidate the patient's pain. Okay? Uh, and I've read many reports in patients' charts where the report might say something like uh, the physical findings don't justify the amount of pain that the patient has or something like that. Um, and, and while it may be true that you can't find peripheral drivers for that patient's pain based on the tests that are available to you now, uh, we should be quite careful about taking the next step and saying, therefore, the patient must not have as much pain as they say they do. Right. Um, so, as you can tell, I'm not a fan of the biomedical model. Uh, these are not advantages of the biomedical model that I'm telling you. These are the weaknesses that it has. Uh, and so this generated the need for a new way of looking at health and, in particular, um, looking at pain. Okay. And I just, uh, as a slight aside, I just want to mention a, a few major sort of touch points historically in pain research that in large part are an answer to the inadequacy of the biomedical model. Um, and I think modern pain research really uh, took off when the gate control theory was published, and it's now been 50 years ago. Um, and the gate control theory had some specific um, predictions about how pain gets processed in the periphery and in the central nervous system, but at a more conceptual level, it opened up pain as, a, as an experience that is hugely influenced by the brain, by descending controls, and it uh, started to call into question this sort of very a specific notion, specificity theory, that essentially you turn on a nerve, that nerve takes its information straight to the brain, and that's what results in pain, right? So the gate control theory got people thinking much more broadly about pain. Um, shortly thereafter, there was a lot of focus on descending pain inhibition, the discovery and, and characterization of pain control systems that you and I have uh, that start in the brain and descend to the spinal cord, and that really modulates the pain signal uh, and the pain experience. And so that was very important in the mid to late 70s. Uh, Clifford Wolf, uh, some 30 plus years ago, coined the term central sensitization uh, to refer to essentially um, activity dependent increases in the responsivity of central nerves that are providing pain-related information. And so this begins to give us uh, an understanding 
of why certain stimuli that either shouldn't hurt at all or shouldn't hurt very much hurt some patients an awful lot because their central nervous systems have been changed in a way that amplifies pain-related input as it comes in. Uh, and this has been a critical piece of, of pain research for many years now. And then uh, more recently, and, and um, Dan Claw, some of you may have heard a talk by him at the conference this week, um, he really has um, put forward this notion of centralized pain, which is a bit different from central sensitization in that it's a much more global concept uh, where pain seems to be driven by changes in how the brain manages pain-related input. Okay. Uh, and the sort of prototype he studied for many years related to this is fibromyalgia, uh, but as we'll talk about later uh, in the session, there are many examples of chronic pain conditions in which uh, changes in central pain processing are really a, an important driver of symptoms uh, and need to be addressed with treatment. So those are some of the developments uh, in pain research over the last several decades that I think have sort of moved the field forward. I was talking about the biomedical model and its inadequacies. Well, George Engel, who's a psychiatrist, back in 1977 published this seminal paper in Science, which is where the biopsychosocial model was proposed. Um, and, and it was uh, his answer to what he saw as many inadequacies of the biomedical model. Uh, and one of the things he said is that the biomedical model embraces both reductionism, the philosophic view that complex phenomena are derived from a single primary principle, and the biomedical model embraces mind-body dualism, the doctrine that separates the mental from the somatic, right? And these were working against patients and preventing us from fully understanding what was driving patients' symptoms. And so, he proposed a biopsychosocial model uh, in this paper, uh, and this is probably the most common model for, in general, how we think about pain, that the experience of pain is sculpted by complex and dynamic interactions among biological, psychological, and sociocultural factors. Okay? And these sets of factors interact with each other. So social factors from uh, my environment, my family background, my ethnic background, those things drive my biological processing of pain, right? So it's not just that we have different things that contribute to pain, it's that these different domains of influences on pain interact with each other. We don't understand all those interactions very well yet, but it gives us an appreciation of how complex pain really is. Some of the strengths of the biopsychosocial model is that it explains a number of phenomena that we recognize about chronic pain from either research or certainly from working with patients who have chronic pain. Uh, and I'll highlight a few of these. Uh, it, the biopsychosocial model helps us understand the poor correspondence between tissue damage and the amount of pain somebody has. I'll touch on that again in a bit. Uh, it also 
helps us understand why it's difficult to know who's at risk for chronic pain, right? Many surgical procedures have a substantial uh, risk of producing chronic pain in patients after the surgery. But we don't know which patients are at risk. If we did, we could either engage preventive interventions or maybe not do that surgery in that patient. But because the biopsychosocial model uh, incorporates multiple components into the experience of pain, it, it reflects the complexity that makes it difficult for us to understand who is at risk for chronic pain, although we are working on that. Um, it also helps us understand why unimodal treatments, a single medication, or a single surgery, or a single psychological intervention, by itself is not particularly helpful for many cases of chronic pain. If we have all of these biological and psychosocial factors interacting to influence the experience of pain, how is it that one treatment would take care of all that? Right? So that makes some sense in the context of the biopsychosocial model. Uh, so, and then I'll touch on these a bit more uh, in a minute. But the poor correspondence between pain and tissue damage. Right? Uh, this gentleman, uh, I don't know how you do laundry, but... Um, <laughs> so there's clear tissue damage here. I think everybody would agree. He's got hooks through his skin from which he's hanging but he doesn't look to be in any particular distress. There aren't overt signs of pain. I don't know what he would tell us if we were talking to him. Um, maybe a more clinically relevant example of the lack of correspondence between tissue damage and pain is this uh, study. I think these data are from the Framingham study uh, where they had uh, radiographs on people, their hands, their knees, uh, and their hips, and these are age ranges here. And so what you see is about a quarter of people, uh, at least for hands and hips, and slightly less for knees, have evidence of radiographic osteoarthritis. They have that disease process, right? But far fewer people than that report any pain in any of these regions. So here we have examples of what we would call tissue damage. If a patient came in with painful knees, we might do that radiograph and say, oh, I see, you have OA, that's why you have pain. But an awful lot of these people have OA and no pain, right? So there's this lack of correspondence between pain and what we consider to be clinically relevant measures of tissue damage. Another example in low back pain, uh, this was work of Eugene Karagi, and they did um, lumbar MRIs on a group of people who have no back pain. Okay? Some of them have pain in their body but not in their back, and others have no pain whatsoever. About a quarter of these people have a normal lumbar MRI. The rest of them have something wrong on their MRI. And if all of these people with degenerative disc disease or disc protrusion come in tomorrow with back pain. They didn't have back pain today, but they come in tomorrow with back pain, and then we do the MRI. We're going to assume their back pain is because of this disc protrusion that they've had long before the pain ever developed, right? And so th this link between tissue damage and pain is really not very strong.
Now another point uh, that the biopsychosocial model helps us understand is that pain is characterized by dramatic individual differences. An example is this study of laparoscopic cholecystectomy, right? So six hours after surgery, patients provided pain ratings. Every dot here is a patient. On average, the median pain score was pretty close to 50, but you can see a number of people here had no pain whatsoever, and a number of people here had really quite severe pain at the top of the scale and individuals populate the entire spectrum of possible pain experiences after undergoing the same surgery. Okay. Uh, and so how painful is it to have laparoscopic cholecystectomy? We have no idea. It depends on which one of these patients you turn out to be. Okay. And you might say, well, the surgery is a little different in everybody. They had different levels of gallbladder disease when they came in. They responded differently to post-op pain medications. So we bypass that in my lab. We have people come in and we provide the pain for them. Okay. So this is a sample of 321 healthy young adults who came to our lab for one of our research studies and we perpetrated a 48 degree heat stimulus which is fairly significantly painful for most people. Uh, average pain was 71.8 out of 100. That's a pretty good pain level. But some people barely found this painful at all, right? Each little thin blue line here is a person. They're all experiencing the exact same stimulus. Some people find it barely painful at all. Some people find it exquisitely painful. And this has to be differences between people because the stimulus is the same for everybody. And the biopsychosocial model helps us understand, well, yeah, there are a lot of factors that drive the experience of pain. And it makes perfect sense now that pain would be so wildly different across different people. Uh, and then one other important component of the biopsychosocial model that's becoming increasingly uh, of interest to those of us in the pain community is that there are common factors that can contribute to pain across different chronic pain conditions. Okay. There's a lot of interest in chronic overlapping pain conditions. We know that many pain conditions co-occur in the same patient. That is, uh, patients with fibromyalgia are dramatically more likely to have another pain condition like irritable bowel syndrome or temporomandibular disorder than people without fibromyalgia. So for some reason, these conditions travel together. And we think part of it is that because the risk factors and the biopsychosocial drivers of pain don't discriminate based on pain condition, they participate in the experience of pain essentially regardless of what the origination of the pain really is. And so, we can understand more uh, about these chronic overlapping pain conditions. And Dan, Dan Claw has put forward what they describe as a pain-prone phenotype, right? There are characteristics of individuals that seem to increase their likelihood of experiencing certain pain conditions. Uh, female sex is indeed a risk factor for most chronic pain conditions, but they also indicate other factors like early life trauma, 
a personal history of chronic centrally mediated symptoms, that is, bodily symptoms that seem not to be explained by any peripheral pathology or disease, uh, catastrophizing, hyperalgesia, or widespread pain sensitivity. And then if you take a person who has these risk factors and expose them to a stressor, be that a, a physical injury, a surgery, a psychological stressor, it then increases the likelihood of them developing a new chronic pain condition or of their current chronic pain condition spreading to other regions of the body. So that's just a brief overview of some of the conceptual factors that lay the foundation for thinking about brain versus body-based treatments. And I think it's helpful just to reflect on some of the peripheral and central mechanisms that seem to be important in driving pain. I'm sure some of you have seen the old Descartes figure where essentially you know, a, a hot fire turns on something in the foot that get, then goes to the brain and the person experiences pain. And of course, it's much more complex than that. Um, but it's instructive to think about, well, there are things going on in the periphery that contribute to the experience of pain. There are things going on at a spinal level where the peripheral fibers come in and synapse on north traveling neurons in the spinal cord, why dynamic range neurons are nociceptive specific neurons, so projection neurons that are taking information from the periphery and transmitting it toward the brain. And then, of course, there's an awful lot that goes on in terms of pain processing in the brain. And so as we're designing treatments or selecting treatments for our patients, we ought to be having some effects in at least one of these three places, right? There are lots of peripheral pain triggers from injury to trauma to overuse, um, and certainly disease processes can drive pain from a peripheral perspective. Okay. And I don't want to go through this slide uh, except to point out, this is a nociceptor, and the uh, channels, the receptors that are there to detect potentially tissue-damaging stimuli are really quite abundant and varied. And so we have a system, and we have nociceptors that are designed for us to detect potential danger in the environment, threats to the integrity of us as an organism. Uh, and so we've already gotten complex, and we're still just at the level of the peripheral nociceptor here. And so you've got trip channels and sodium channels and P2X and acid-sensing ion channels. And, and so we have this apparatus that's designed to detect potential damage. And then these neurons synapse, and this is a spinal neuron that's going to project information to the brain. There are inner neurons that can influence what gets released from the afferent, uh, from uh, sodium channels, calcium channels, opiates. Um, there are also, I mentioned the descending system, right? So there are descending neurons coming down from the brain that use opiates, norepinephrine, and serotonin to impact the northbound transmission. And so we move from a periphery that has a complex apparatus for detecting pain 
to the spinal cord that has its own apparatus for modulating the pain signal as it's coming in. And then, of course, we get to the brain, where there are a variety of central pain pathways and neurochemical mechanisms that can modulate the experience of pain as it's being sculpted and processed in the brain. And so we have a very complex system that modulates the incoming information, and that's one of the things that sort of disconnects the experience of pain from whatever peripheral stimulus we think started it, right? Because it gets modulated at the peripheral level, at the spinal level, and indeed at the brain level. And again, this is more work from Dan Claw's group, where these processes that facilitate and inhibit pain transmission give us targets for managing pain in the brain and in the spinal cord. And so let's talk a bit about body uh, versus brain-based treatments. So we've got peripheral factors, we've got central factors. What's your target for pain treatment? We have lots of options at our disposal. On drug.com, there are 537 pain medications. Um, and, of course, they fall into a, a more limited group of categories, right? But we have NSAIDs and anesthetics and so on and so forth, and these target the periphery and or the brain. We have a variety of procedures we can perform uh, in the service of treating a patient's pain. Uh, many of these are peripherally-based treatments, some of them um, can influence central pain processing, certainly. Uh, we have physical modalities. Uh, you'll hear more about manual therapy from Steve George later today. Uh, and again, these can target the brain or the body or both. Psychological interventions. There are a variety of psychological interventions. They uh, originate their, their initial target is the brain, obviously, but they can also influence the periphery, right? Um, and then there are a variety of alternative therapies. Some of these we know more about than others in terms of their evidence. You'll hear uh, more about acupuncture uh, later today as part of the APS track. So, look, we've got lots of treatments at our disposal, um, some of them more effective than others, and they all have some target, either the body or the brain or both, right? And so if you look, if you think about what you want to do is try to match the treatments that you're providing to the mechanisms that are driving a patient's pain. That seems pretty easy. The problem is we often don't know what mechanisms are driving a patient's pain, and we often don't know what mechanisms our treatments affect. But beyond that, this is really easy. Um, <laughs> but there are sort of peripheral or nociceptive mechanisms. That is, there are chronic pain states that are thought to be largely driven by peripheral input. Uh, certainly post-operative pain uh, is a peripherally initiated event, but, you know, acute pain, osteoarthritis pain historically has been thought of in this way, rheumatoid arthritis where there's ongoing inflammation or tissue damage that seems to be driving the pain, okay? Then there are sort of neuropathic mechanisms where nerves 
have been damaged or their function altered in some way, these can respond to both peripheral and centrally acting therapies. Um, some of them might respond to surgery or an injection, and you see some examples there. But, but you see that the mechanism influences what treatments the patient might respond to. And then, of course, there are the more centralized pain where the, the, the view is that a large part of what's contributing to this patient's clinical symptoms are changes in how the central nervous system handles pain-related input. Okay. These tend to be responsive to CNS-acting drugs, uh, impacting some of the specific neurotransmitter systems, uh, serotonergic drugs, noradrenergic drugs, for example, uh, that are involved in pain, sleep, and mood disturbance. Um, these individuals often have multiple pain conditions, not just one. Uh, and then here are some of the classic examples that have been seen in the literature. And so let's think about Dolores. Uh, she's 57 years old, bilateral knee pain, left worse than right, has had pain for uh, a while, but it's been increasingly interfering with her activities. She's generally healthy, but is uh, obese and has well-controlled hypertension. Radiographs reveal moderate OA in both knees. And I use the example of knee osteoarthritis uh, because, number one, it's hugely prevalent. It's the leading cause of disability in older adults and one of the leading causes of disability in the world. It has classically been viewed as sort of a, a typical peripherally-based pain condition, right? The problem in knee OA is somebody's got a bad knee, and that's, that peripheral tissue damage is driving their experience of pain. And, and treatments, historically, again, have been body-based, non-steroidals, injections into the knee, knee replacement, so on and so forth. But let's think about this a little more deeply. We're doing some work in the osteoarthritis where we're trying to understand uh, ethnic group differences in pain and disability in the OA, but we're also just trying to understand more broadly what are the factors that contribute to the amount of pain people have when they have knee OA. This is just a little protocol diagram of, of uh, how people matriculate through our study. We do a health assessment, uh, and those who have uh, NEOA then go through a quantitative sensory testing protocol, and I'll show you some of those data as well. And our quantitative sensory testing protocol is multimodal. We do heat pain testing, mechanical pain testing, cold presser pain, and then we do a test of condition pain modulation to get an idea of the functioning of their internal pain control system, their ability to, to inhibit their own pain. Okay? Uh, and I should mention that some of these tests are performed both on the knee that's most painful for them and intentionally at an unaffected body site. Uh, and I'll give you examples uh, of those data. And so here's what our group looked like. We had uh, just under 300 NEOA patients and we divided them into those who had a high level of clinical pain based on the graded chronic pain scales characteristic pain score. The median in our sample happened to be 50 out of 100. So people who were 50 or higher are in the high pain group, lower than that in the low pain group. 
Uh, and you see they're similar in age and sex. Um, more African-Americans uh, are in the high pain group than in the low pain group. Uh, and then you can see obviously the high pain group has more pain. That's the way they were designed. They also have poorer function. This is a short physical performance battery, a test of sitting, standing, and walking. Uh, and they also have slightly higher depression scores, not at a clinical level, but higher depression than both their low OA counter, low pain counterparts and compared to controls. But here are some of the quantitative sensory testing data. This is uh, heat pain threshold intolerance, and you see the high pain patients in blue, the low pain patients with OA in orange, and the controls without any OA are in white. And in general, what we see is that the high pain group is more pain sensitive no matter where we hurt them, okay? Uh, on the arm, their pain threshold is lower, specifically compared to controls. But if you look at pain tolerances, the high pain group is more sensitive than their low pain counterparts. So we begin to see this picture with heat pain. We also see it with pressure pain and again, these are on the joint line of the affected knee. This is the same quadriceps, but this is the trapezius muscle to upper body sites and the arm. And the people with high levels of OA pain are more pressure pain sensitive throughout their body compared to controls. And in some instances, compared to their low pain OA counterparts, this is a test of temporal summation of punctate pain. We poke people once with a stiff von Frey hair, a nylon monofilament, then we poke them 10 times once every second with the same monofilament. We get a rating of pain after the first poke and then a rating of pain after the 10 pokes. And the slope of that line reflects temporal summation of mechanical pain, a, a, central nerve, a, a transient form of central nervous system sensitization. And what we see again is that our high pain patients are more sensitive and they show more robust summation compared to the other two groups. And so the picture is that patients with high levels of osteoarthritis pain show a global enhancement in their pain sensitivity uh, tested throughout their body. Now, whether they have more pain sensitivity because they have lots of neo-A pain or whether they have lots of neo-A pain because they have higher pain sensitivity, we can't tell in this study because it's cross-sectional. Uh, these are heat pain ratings that show uh, the same effect. And so when you think about pain modulatory balance for all of us who are healthy and free of chronic pain, our experience of pain is kept in check by a balance between pain inhibition and pain facilitation. And there is a healthy balance that we need in order to be able to detect pain when it's there, but to be able to inhibit pain when it would interfere with function, okay? Uh, and so we hopefully have some healthy balance of pain inhibition and pain facilitation, but what we're seeing in our osteoarthritis population is they're getting out of balance. They're much better at pain facilitation, especially those with high levels of clinical pain, and they're worse at pain inhibition. And I'll give you an example of that uh, here in just a minute. Um, and, and so the pain-prone phenotype also evoked this notion of psychological symptoms or psychological risk factors. And we took this same NEOA cohort 
and we looked at psychological profiles that were present uh, in our group. Um, and, and we essentially identified this interesting group right here. So it's, uh, you know, 15% of our sample had a profile across multiple pain measures from passive pain coping to somatic reactivity to pain vigilance and depression and negative affect. They have high levels of distress or psychological symptomatology across multiple domains. Okay? And this is a very common finding in clinical pain cohorts when you do psychological phenotyping. There tends to be a subgroup of patients with pain who have high levels of distress across multiple psychological domains. Uh, these people, as you might imagine, also have higher levels of pain and disability uh, than the other psychological profiles. They also tend to be more pain sensitive. This is the low distress group that has the highest pain thresholds on the knee and on the shoulder. And then here's the high distress group that has the lowest pain thresholds or the most pressure pain sensitivity. And interestingly, uh, this is our measure of condition pain modulation, that is pain inhibition. Uh, and so this is a pain rating, heat pain rating on one hand before and after we ask them to stick their other hand in ice cold water. So if your pain control system is working well, the cold water should reduce the painfulness of the heat pain on the other hand. Okay? That only happened for our low distress group. All of the other psychological profiles that have some level of psychological distress failed to show uh, a pain inhibitory response. So these psychological profiles are not only related to clinical symptoms, but they're also related to pain modulatory balance. So we need to consider these psychological profiles uh, when we're deciding pain treatments and trying to uh, understand the mechanisms driving pain. So we've got Dolores here. Um, I've told you about her profile. In order to decide how to treat Dolores, what else would you want to know? If you're trying to figure out, okay, does Dolores have a centralized pain phenotype, a peripheral pain phenotype, or some blend, how would you figure that out? Pardon? Ah, yeah, so you, you, you would get some more history, ask about her function, ask about potentially other pain conditions, because as we talked about, the centralized pain profile typically includes multiple pain sites, not just one. Any other thoughts about what would be helpful? Pardon? Ah, sleeping. Yes, that's an excellent one. Uh, we could spend the whole session on sleep and pain, but sleep dysregulation is a major driver of enhanced pain processing. Mm. Ah, yes. Yeah, so the genetic component, so there's the familial component, right? Uh, pain is more common in the offspring of people who have chronic pain, 
that could be genetic, that could be environmental, or most likely a combination of the two. There certainly are genetic factors that are statistically associated with enhanced pain sensitivity. Probably the most well-researched one is the catecholomethyltransferase gene that uh, encodes the enzyme that breaks down catecholamines. And so if you have a gene that means you don't break down catecholamines very well, you'll be particularly susceptible to the effects of catecholamines, which would suggest that stress is going to magnify your pain more than somebody with a healthy COMT process. Okay? So let's think about where Dolores is here, right? So let's imagine that there are these two components to pain. There's sort of the peripheral drivers of pain and then there's centralized pain and we want Dolores, we want to know where she is on this continuum in order to move forward with treatment. Well, to assess for centralized pain, and we've heard some of this already, a pain body map would be incredibly helpful if the body map is completely filled in with pain, it's hard to imagine that treating the knee alone is going to fix it. Um, multiple somatic symptoms in addition to pain, dizziness, nausea, fatigue, uh, heartburn, things like that. Um, what's the level of psychological function? Uh, and now this is difficult because if you have substantial pain, you tend not to be a very happy camper, right? And so this somebody with high levels of psychological distress, that could be a response to the pain and its effects on their quality of life, but it could also be a driver of central pain processing. Okay. Uh, and then you could do quantitative sensory testing. Most of us aren't set up to do that in our clinics, but you can do manual palpation uh, of tender points in different parts of the body. And if you find that your patient is quite sensitive, no matter where you poke them, that's another sign of sort of centralized pain. And so if we find Dolores is really high on the peripheral pain component uh, and not on the centralized pain component, that's going to drive us maybe to focus on non-steroidals, knee-based treatments, whether that's injections or otherwise. On the other hand, if Dolores is way over here, we're going to focus on treatments that impact the central nervous system, including medications or exercise or cognitive behavioral therapies. As a caveat, though, I want to mention this study that was done by Irene Tracy's group uh, in, at Oxford, and they, they looked at uh, brain atrophy, specifically th thalamic atrophy, and as you know, chronic pain has been associated with reduced gray matter volume in certain brain regions, uh, and these were HIPOA patients, uh, and they showed that after patients were successfully treated with arthroplasty, the reduced brain matter in their thalamus normalized, okay? So their th thalamic atrophy was removed after their pain was successfully treated. So there was a central consequence of their chronic pain, but by removing the peripheral driver of the pain, they helped normalize this central component to the pain. So it makes it a bit more complex, right? And so with our straw man, uh, do we want to treat the brain or the body? Well, inevitably what we do tends to treat both, right? NSAIDs are more targeting the periphery, 
but they can also reduce central sensitization, potentially weight loss. Well, it puts less pressure on the affected knee, uh, but it also reduces systemic inflammation, uh, which can drive enhanced central pain processing, you know. And so as you go through this list, they can have both peripheral and central benefits. And so uh, what I've tried to tell you is that our treatments target the brain or the body or typically both um, matching treatments to the patient's pain mechanisms and trying to determine whether the patient has more of a centralized aspect to their pain or a peripheral aspect to their pain is helpful. Do we have a question? Right, right, yeah. Uh, no, uh, you know, I don't, I mean, you can tell me if skin bi biopsies are becoming anything close to standard of care. I don't think so. I think it's very interesting. I think there's still a lot of questions, especially about how skin biopsies are contributing to things like chronic widespread pain. I don't think it's been integrated into the clinic yet, but it may come in the future. Um, but I think it's a good point. That's another diagnostic test or phenotype that can help us understand potential mechanisms. But we have simple methods that we can use to identify centralized pain from body maps to measures of somatic awareness. And I thank you for your attention.